So uh, you call a friend. You call a friend, you're in relationship with this person, and they normally return your phone call. Like, this is the friend that always returns your phone call, right? I mean, this is the friend that, and, and you're, they're the friend that you do the double call to, just to, you know, and they always return it. But this time, they, they don't. Or this time, it, it, like, they, they, all day, you just go, and there's never a return phone call. Uh, or, or you send a, an email or a text message. Uh, to that one friend that like always responds, and of course, like they respond with the the six exclamation points and every emotion possible in text message. You know, they like they're the ones that you know within a few seconds you know that their phone's on uh, on them and, and they see that you're, but they don't like they don't send the exclamation point, they don't send the smiley face. This time, you get something that's short, uh, direct to the point, different, and so you give it about three minutes before that that mind of yours starts going crazy. Now, did that, are, are they, are they mad? Are they mad at me? Like, did I, well, yesterday when we talked, it didn't seem, hold on. Yeah, there was that one when we, she looked, she looked at me kind of weird. So maybe it's, maybe she is mad at me and maybe, and your mind just keeps going and you're like, I just, you know what? I don't even, I don't even like her anyway. Like, I don't even want this friendship. Like, this is ridiculous. And your mind just, it just keeps going and going and going. And uh, you know, uh, maybe this has happened to you today, but you, um, like it consumes you, right? You're like you can't sleep. Uh, you've just literally created this whole soap opera of a story in your mind. And then the next day, uh, you run into them and they, they open up their arms and, to give you a hug. And they're like, hey, you know what? And, and they, they give you a hug and they're like, hey, I'm really sorry about not getting back with you yesterday. I was just, I was just incredibly busy and I didn't have a chance. And, and literally in one moment in time, this entire balloon of drama that you had created is just... It's just completely burst. Uh, it's in that moment that you realize how precious the truth is. That sense, that moment, when like they're not mad, they're not angry, the relationship's just fine, that you realize how precious the truth is. Maybe you're like me and you, you have a friend that you have like just trusted. Like the, the, you have this one friend that you would say, this person knows everything about me. They know every deep, dark secret. They know every... Thing about, they know my past. They know what I want in the future. They know everything. And then maybe that friend, um, because of an act that they did or something that they said, they turned out to not be who they said they were. And so it, it just puts you on your heels. But I, thought, but I thought we were completely open and honest. Like, how could you ever, how could you ever be that person? Like, I've known you for so long and you're, and then you start pressing back on other people. If you can't trust like the one person that you trusted the most, now all of a sudden you're looking at everyone. And it's, it's like, I, maybe you're a fake too. It's in that moment that you realize how precious the truth is. When you get to that point in your life when you're like, I don't know that I can trust anyone. I'm wondering if everyone is just a part of this massive masquerade putting on a show. It's in that moment that you realize how precious the truth is. Uh, for me, one of the blessings of the journey through Hebrews has been this overarching theme. No matter what culture is communicating, deceit, lie, false advertisement, shading the truth, white lies, all of this, constantly bombarded. Same thing in the Jewish context in Hebrews. No matter what culture is saying, no matter what system you're a part of, no matter what lies you potentially are believing, there is one precious truth. 
one precious truth. That precious truth supersedes everything else. That one precious truth is the thing that we're all journeying after. It's the person of Christ. And I, it's so encouraging to me, listen, it's so encouraging to me to be constantly bombarded with all of this lie and deceit, but to have the one thing that's true. And it's so encouraging to me that we get to gather and not like put up some, some picture book fairy tales and hope for the best and not stir our hearts with like emotional things. We get the chance to open the true book and to hear about the true source of life in Christ. Are you with me? And so look, I, I don't, I just believe that. And because of that, friends, like that's how we approach the text. So with that in mind, I, I invite you to guys to open uh, your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10. Like I said, I hope you're ready to go tonight. Um, there's some potential tonight for God to really do a work in us. And uh, Hebrews, the whole theme has been, I know that you're attached to this old system and this old covenant and this old way, but you need to know this. The person of Christ is better. He's better than Moses. He's better than Aaron. He's better than the angels. He's better than the whole system. He is so much better. And so now we're in uh, Hebrews chapter 10. I know that feels like a miracle, uh, but we're there. A few chapters left. Pretty crazy. Hebrews has been great. I hope for you as well. Let's read these first uh, four verses and then we're going to rock and roll. Verse 1. Hebrews 10. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make what perfect those who draw near. Verse 2. Otherwise... Would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have the consciousness of sin? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sin every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Four verses. Let's start in verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of of these realities. Now, I, I want to start with the concept of the shadow. Shadows are interesting. I've talked about them before. We've seen it in Hebrews 8, chapter 5. Uh, shadows can be like some of the most scary things that are ever created, right? Like you're walking down an alley, you see a shadow, your world crumbles. You're sleeping in your bed, you see shadows, your world crumbles. Like shadows are scary. So, because of that, I'd like to show you a shadow, if I may. I've always dreamed of uh, using my iPhone's uh, flashlight and a teaching before. This is my moment in time. Now, um, <clears throat> I'm not going to make turkey symbols or anything like that, but this actually proves how fat my fingers are. Like, my wife, like, early in our dating, she's like, you have really fat hands. I was like, are you serious? Like, thank you so much for that. Now, um, obviously what, what we have on the wall is a shadow. Now, if anyone on this side, if we were to start taking volunteers, if you were to go up there and try to hold my shadow hand, right, uh, there would be nothing there. There's shape, there's form, but there's, there's nothing in reality. It's just the, the, the light shining through what's true, and it's projecting something on the wall. In fact, projecting it so much so that it's distorted. See what I'm saying? It has the form of the original, but when you look at it closely, obviously it's much larger, it's distorted. Well, if the shadow and the things to come 
have been a huge theme for Hebrews. The thought is this. It seems ludicrous for any of us to say, that, that's the real hand. Like we would all say, well, th- like there's no way. Like that's, that's clearly not the real hand. This is the real hand. That's been the point of the whole book of Hebrews. You're holding on and clinging on to things that if you step back for a moment, seems ludicrous. But that's just what the ancient Jews in this context were doing. They were hanging on to the shadow, the things of the old, the things that were just a form, an image of the thing to come in Christ, you see. But until you step back and really, he's repeated this over and over and over. Why? Because he know how much they would struggle with it. A shadow, my friends, is not the real thing. And so for you and for us and for the readers of Hebrews, he keeps impressing on them. It's just the form. The real thing is in Christ. Are you with me? The rest of verse 1, let's keep going. This gets awesome. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, listen to this, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make, what? Perfect those who draw near. I feel like after we understand the shadow, the next connection we need to make is between the law and perfect. Why are these two words in this verse and connected? Next slide, the Ten Commandments. How many of you guys uh, grew up memorizing this? Anyone? A few of you guys. uh, This was on your refrigerator. It wasn't your report card. It was the Ten Commandments, right? Now, God gives these to Moses in Exodus chapter 20. And what the Ten Commandments do, and we've talked about it many times here, is they prove over and over and over that man, in and of himself, cannot obey God. So the connection between law and perfection is that man cannot follow the law perfectly. Man will never be able to follow the law in and of himself perfectly. He will fail constantly. So if the shadow is the law and the true reality is Christ, then what's the connection between Christ, the law, and perfection? Are we together? Next slide. Matthew, love this. Do not think, Jesus talking, that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to what? To fulfill them. The connection of Jesus, the law, and the prophets is that Jesus fulfills the law perfectly. No man could follow God's law. All man would fail. Jesus comes and fulfills it, embodies it, lives it to a T in every way, shape, and form. Thus, anyone who follows Jesus is a follower of Christ, is grafted in Christ, is seen through the lens of God through Jesus, and that means what? Seen as righteous, right? This beautiful, beautiful picture. Now put, put back up verse 1 for me. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, I've been wrestling with this thought. Why would God wait so long? Like in other words, he gives the law, the Ten Commandments. Moses comes down, right? Charlton Heston voice, here are the Ten Commandments, here we go. And, and he gives the law. Why would he wait so long to, to bring Jesus in the mix? Like, man clearly was failing early on. Like, why didn't he just give the law, let man go at it for three days, realize that they were failures, and then send Christ? Well, I've uh, developed a little timeline to help us. Here we go. Um, <clears throat> now, Genesis 3, we see the fall of man. Exodus 20, like we've just said. Why are there hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years between Exodus 20 and when Jesus is born? And why are there hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years from when Christ dies, resurrects, and still hasn't come back? 
Why the time? Why the distance? Now listen, I'm not going to claim to understand all of the truths of God, and I'm not going to claim in this moment to know for sure, but I'd like to make some speculation if I could. If Jesus comes three days after Exodus 20, the proof of man's insufficiency is somewhat minimal. Jesus waits hundreds and hundreds of years. The proof of man's insufficiency is quite clear. Amen? Over and over and over, man keeps returning, like the scripture says, like a dog to the vomit. Like man keeps failing. Man will not. Hundreds of years of proof of that. We need Jesus. We need something else. So then why, after Jesus dies, resurrects, why hasn't he come back yet? Even the early apostles thought it was possible that he would come back then. Why has he waited so long? Is it possible that he's shown, just as he did in the Old Testament, the true power of the gospel and how it transforms life? In other words, if he resurrects, walks out of the tomb, and then three days later, here I am! I know it hasn't been long. Aren't you glad to see me again? We're not able to truly see the grip and the power of of what the gospel can do in people's lives. But you give it hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, and my friends, we have so much record of what Christ has done in men and women. Are you with me? In you. So much record. So much glory then that can be given to God because of what he's done. Do you guys understand? So why would he wait? Why would this law and perfection and Christ, why would all of it take so much time so that we could really understand the insufficiency of man, the full sufficiency of Christ, and the power of the gospel in our lives, period. And so we wait. And as we wait, we get to watch God work. Amen? Verse 2 says this. Let's keep going. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. This is an interesting verse. I want to start here. I'm a complete uh, OCD neat freak. I'm a clean freak. Anyone else here? You love to be clean. You lo- okay. Four of us. I wondered what the stench was here uh, this evening. <laughs> Glad that we're doing. Um, I, and many of you guys know this about me. I just, I'm weird about it. I just, unless I'm going to get dirty, I don't like to get dirty. Uh, so much so, it even transforms into my children. Uh, last night, we give our kids baths, and we give them a lot of baths. I mean, I want my kids clean, you know. And I'm, I'm trying to let my boys get dirty, because I don't want them to, like, grow up like dad all the way, you know what I'm saying? So I'm trying to let them, like, but then right after their boys to the bath, you know what I'm saying? Let's do this. But we give them a bath, and, and we're, we go downstairs, and I've taken my fourth shower of the day. And, um, <laughs> and my wife comes down at 7.45 at night. And she, she has this glorious snack that she's pretty excited about, Cheetos. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen a two-year-old eat Cheetos before, but it's not with a knife and a fork, you know what I'm saying? It's not like, and now, you know, like these dudes, like they're going to get all up in it, you know? And so here, here are my boys. I'm looking at my wife 15 minutes before bedtime, and I want nothing to do with like Cheeto hands, you know what I'm saying? I'm trying to read some books, like they're getting their hands on me. I'm like wiping it off with baby wipes. Like I just, I'm a clean freak, right? Now, I've thought in my mind, the most amazing invention would be a home that all you had to do was clean at once. Literally. You moved in. You call like 1-800 like awesome cleaners. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> they come in. They do a clean sweep. And they, put, you know, they pour some special magic stuff around the house. I don't know. And literally, like the house never gets dirty again. We have people over all the time, I feel like. And I love doing and I love cleaning. But I feel like we're just constantly cleaning the house. Well, obviously... There isn't 1-800-AWESOME-CLEANERS. That's never going to happen. There's never going to be a house that doesn't get dirty. 
but that's the exact concept here. What if there was one sacrifice that made all things clean? You see what I'm saying? Like, what if there was a sacrifice that could take all the dirt and there would never need to be another sacrifice? What if that was possible? And not just what if that was possible, but what if it became a reality in Christ? And that's exactly what verse 2 is saying. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? If there was a way for all the sacrifice to be completely stopped, then what, what would have happened? The worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. In the old economy, the Old Testament, the worshipers, the saints, would have been completely lifted from the burden of sin. The once for all sacrifice would have happened, but that's not what happened. Over and over and over, repetition of the sacrifice of sin. You see what I'm saying? Now this is beautiful. The word worshipers here. When you hear the word worshiper, what do you think of? I'm not, this, this really isn't participation, but just think about it. I would imagine like many of you uh, think of um, like this forum. Like a worshiper is someone in a church building and uh, they, they, they're singing and they're really intense, right? And every once in a while they like do the, the double fist pump, right? And like that, that's what would be going through your mind. The Greek word here for worshipers, listen, it implies a repetitive over and over and over giving of homage or service to something else. Do you see the connection? If there would have been a once-for-all sacrifice in the Old Testament, the product would have been a cleansed worshiper. Someone who repeatedly, over and over and over, is giving admiration to God. So the question then becomes, what if that did happen? He kind of leaves us hanging there, and then he moves on to uh, verse 3. Look at this. But in these sacrifices... There is a reminder of sin every year. Uh, let's show up my graph from uh, last week. And I showed you guys last week that, that this is the reminder of sin. Every year, once a year, there's this day of atonement. And every year, once a year, all of the Jews in the old covenant system would be completely reminded of, of all of these last year's sins. Could you imagine living under that burden? Um, I know a, a few of you here are married. Um, Jason, you remember your wedding day, bro? Awesome. Marcy, you remember, remember your wedding day? Certainly. Yes. How, how many years, how many years have you guys been married? Three, three years. That's awesome. Congrats. Give it up for those guys, man. Congratulations. That's good stuff. Now, now my wedding day was awesome. I loved it. Uh, but here's what started happening. Three weeks before my wife said this, honey, listen. Uh, so you know, when like they walk out and people like throw things, you guys know what I'm talking about? At weddings, I don't understand this principle. Don't know where it came from. Like, it's like bird seed. It's like, hey, we just got married. Throw bird seed in our eye. You know what I'm saying? Like, it doesn't make sense. Or bubbles. For my wife, it was balloons, all right? She's like, I just have this awesome image. When we get married, we're going to walk out, and there's going to be this massive pollution of America. You know, we're just going to let helium balloons just go up, right? So I'm like, fair enough. She says, Mark, here's what I need you to do. Here's what I need you to do. On the day of the wedding, I need you to go pick up all these balloons. Well, we had like four or 500 people. I'm like, what do you want me to use, a bus? Like, what do you, where am I going to put all these balloons? Don't worry about it. Just figure it out. Okay. I'm like, all right, honey, you know. <laughs> you don't mess with a bride pre-wedding. You don't <laughs> mess with a bride, you know, right on, right on, honey. Well, anyway, here's what happens. She ends up, day after day, proceeding to remind me of this task that I have. Like, just over and over. Hey, honey, uh, yes, yes, babe. 
of the balloons. You've got, yes, balloons, I have them. I mean, it's coming in every form, fashion. I'm getting emails. That was really before texting. I'm getting calls on, you know, on the old you know, school cellies where they're the size of your face. I'm getting all of that, right? Here's what I realized. Um, she was reminding me because she thought I needed it. Like reminders come when, when you need it, which is a little bit condemning to some of us, right? Like if your friends are re- constantly remind you of something, that means something, okay? If, if your friends are constantly like, hey, uh, by the way, I know I just told you an hour ago, but could you make sure you do that? What they're saying is, I don't trust that you remembered that an hour ago, right? <laughs> um, but what happens is, it's like the reminder gets annoying. Like, and God love her. I mean, I love my wife. But after like the first 10 times, it's like, honey, listen, I got it. It's taken care of. Could you imagine year after year after year constantly being reminded of your sin? It just keeps coming up. Could you imagine not just how annoying that would be, but how deafening that would be, condemning that would be? Now what if I threw this statement in it? They deserved it. There was no reason that they didn't deserve it. There was no sacrifice that had fully atoned for their sin. Under the old economy, the old uh, covenant, those ancient Jews deserved to be reminded of their sin. And so do you. But the power of Christ completely releases that condemnation. Listen, now does it make sense a little bit more? They deserved it. You deserve it. They got reminded. But my friends, and this is so incredibly beautiful, guess what you get reminded of? Luke 22. Jesus is sharing the Lord's Supper. Unbelievable verse. Listen, years and years and years of remembering sin. And he took the bread, and when he had given, that, and when he given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in what? Remembrance of me. No longer remembering your sin in terms of condemnation. You remember your sin in terms of your need of Christ, but now you remember Christ, me. That's it. That, my friends, is the beauty of the gospel. That, my friends, is what should constantly be infiltrating our minds. That's what the church is rallying around. We're not rallying around the condemnation fest. We're not pointing fingers in judgment. You know what we're doing? We're constantly pointing to Jesus. He's who we need. He's our hope. He's our true love. That's where we need to go. That's where we need to rest. And when we ever become this church or community or congregation that becomes phenomenal at pointing fingers at each other, anytime you do that, you're taking uh, you're taking attention away from the person of Christ. Are you with me? So let's just take a second right now and just confess. Like, where are you right now in your heart, burdened with judgment, gossip, and ridicule of others in this room? It's taking attention away from Christ. When your attention is on the fullness of Christ, then guess what happens? Then we encouragingly and lovingly restore people and hold people accountable. Through the lens of Jesus. Are you with me? There's a difference between condemnation and judgment and walking arm in arm with the brother and challenging them to pursue the Lord in a more, uh, in a more difficult, hard way. You see, you see what I'm saying? So, ver- so put back up verse 3 for me. 
Uh, verse 3, just put it back up for, for a second here. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sin every single year. It just keeps coming up. The Day of Atonement in Christ does something different. And verse 4, uh, for it is impossible, look at this, for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Now this seems like an odd transition, right? Um, all of a sudden we got bulls and goats again, and blood, and, and this is really incredibly interesting. I would just put up my, my only verse 4 there. I want you guys to see this. This is really what I've been looking at for a lot the past week. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Now what I've been thinking about is what else should be inserted there? It is impossible for fill in the blank to take away sins. So if you don't mind, I've been thinking about it a lot. I'd like to share some of these with you. I think it'll be helpful for our context. Uh, first slide. It is impossible for obedience to take away sins. Now this is tough. Because it feels at times like there's this constant push of morality that's coming down on us. But my friends, as much as you will ever obey, if it's devoid of Christ, it will not and cannot forgive you of any sins. No merit, no measure, you will never be able to obey your way to Jesus. You see what I'm saying? Now, this seems maybe like, oh yeah, I've got that, but really... How do you view yourself when you do a righteous act? Is there something in your heart that's looking up to God and saying, pretty well done, huh? Or is it only because of you? Only because of you can I, can I obey. Only because of you can my heart be changed. There's a completely different perspective. Next slide. For it is impossible for, and I love this one, participation. Uh, there's this thought that somehow by sitting in a seat, or a pew in some uh, cases, that that gets you something. I just want to make sure you understand. Your attendance in anything doesn't mean anything, okay? Like we, we can sit, all of us, in this room, singing songs and listening to the word for, our, for the rest of our life, and God isn't up there saying, oh, well done, another day of attendance, that's phenomenal. You perfect, gold star today, that's five in a row, right? You get a snack. I mean, there, there's none of that, right? But, but that's the kind of mentality that we've embraced. By coming here, that's earning me something in God's eyes. No, we come here to rally as the church around Christ. That's what we're doing here. Learning together, worshiping together so we can be sent out the doors. That's why we're here. We're not here so others can see us. Hey, I'm at church again. We're, not here, to, we're here to pursue Jesus. So participation gets you nowhere. It's beneficial, right? Next slide. Oh, this is a good one for many of you. For it is impossible for faith by association to take away sins. Uh, I know your daddy was, was a strong Christian. Okay? I know your mom read the Bible every night. I know granddad, and many of you guys know my story. My grandpa, who dude was a stallion. All right? Great man of God. But if I'm relying on my grandfather's faith to do anything in terms of my relationship with Christ, I'm dead wrong. It's you and Jesus. It's me and Jesus. This becomes even tougher in a marriage, I feel like sometimes. My wife sometimes seems more on fire than I am, and I'm kind of like feeding off of her faith, like, all right, babe, like if you could just live it for me, right? But many of you guys have that one friend who's just on fire, and you feel like as long as you sit by them or as long as you're always around them, then your faith is rocking, you know? But your heart isn't changing. You're watching theirs change. Faith by association does not forgive sins. 
associating with believers is a phenomenal thing, a great thing, an encouraging thing, but it does not forgive your sin. Next slide. Uh, This is important, for it is impossible for a human priest or pastor to take away sins. Uh, James chapter 5 says, uh, confess your sins uh, for that you, so that you may be healed. But the healing in James 5 is completely different than forgiveness of sins. Uh, so obviously, culturally, in, in our context, uh, let me just tell you this. If you ever confess your sins to me, like, I think there's some healing in that and we can wrestle through that. There's no forgiveness that comes in that. It's a conversation, right? But there, there's nothing powerful in terms of forgiveness of your sins, that by confessing it to me or anyone else that you think is a person of authority, that somehow God says, oh, that's good, right? You, through Him, because, no, through Christ only, okay? So I know some of you, and, and maybe many of you, and certainly culturally, we have this perspective of it's through a man. Through a man is done. Through a Jesus is here now, okay? So I'm a communicator of God's Word. I'm not your mediator to God, period. Please continue to hear that, all right? And I know many of us have placed stock in, in people of authority, people who are communicators of God's word. I'm simply a messenger of God, called to shepherd this church. No more, no less. Uh, this is a good one. For it is impossible for knowledge to take away sins. So you can literally communicate all of the text to me. Like you could stand up here and, and recite Matthew, all 28 chapters, right? And it could mean nothing. It could be rote memorization. I don't care how much you know, and oftentimes it seems that those who have an incredible knowledge, that there's this disconnect. I love, the, I love the folks who have a deep knowledge and a deep passion for the Lord. I love those hearts. Because God is like changing their minds continually about his character, and then he connects it with emotion, and he connects it with passion. It's beautiful, but knowledge alone does nothing. That's the Pharisees, man. They could communicate all the, all the religious law and perspective. Didn't know Christ. Uh, next slide. Now, this is tough. This is when uh, other religions call Christians intolerant, potentially bigots. And I want to approach this. Uh, I want to approach this softly, but at the same time, I want to approach this in reality. Jesus said, "I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me." Forgiveness of sins comes from no other religion. Period. Anyone can call me intolerant for saying that, and I'll stick to my guns. See what I'm saying? In love, in encouragement. Any other time I'm having any other conversation with any person from another religion, I always do so in love, I always do so in compassion, and I always ask one question, tell me what you think about Jesus. That's it. That's all I need to know. I don't need to know about your 15 heavens. I don't need to know about all this other stuff. Just tell me what you think about Jesus. Well, he was a good prophet and a good teacher. Okay, okay well, we're in different camps then. Because Jesus, is, he was a great prophet, he was a great teacher, but he's Messiah, he's Savior, he's Redeemer. He like pulled me out of the pit, you see what I'm saying? So he's more than just like an actor or a great communicator. He's everything, he's Savior, he's Lord. And so if you're here, then I just want to make it crystal clear, we're in different camps, okay? Again, we have to approach those conversations with much grace, with much love, and with, and with much compassion. But never confuse that with maybe this God over here is the same God. You ask them what they believe about Jesus, and there's where you can tell, my friends. Is he Redeemer? Is he Savior? Is he Lord? Is he God? If he's just a teacher, just a prophet, just a pleasantry, we're talking about different things, and it's only through Christ that comes forgiveness. Are you with me? 
So people can say that, like, I'm, I'm intolerant or I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm not about everyone's, you know, God. The way, the truth, and the life. I believe in the Bible, and so that's where I stand. Last and probably most significantly, you can't do it either. Now here, here's our problem. We want to. Because we want to give back something. We look at grace, and our instant thought is, that's great and all, but, but God, what can I give you? And so it's like we spend the rest of our life trying to make God happy. Here, God, like, I, like this, I'm sure this will make you happy. I'm sure God's wrath has been appeased in Jesus. The fullness of God's wrath on sin was completely put on Christ. I don't have to spend the rest of my life trying to make God happy. God is pleased if I'm grafted in Christ. And then the result of that is my life is completely changed and morphed to the gospel and everything I do will look different. But I can't forgive my sins. But we want to. Because then it would feel better. Then it would feel like, like we've done something in this conversation with us and God. But you haven't. You have done nothing. Listen, wouldn't it be a great day if you could just rest that? I have done nothing. You have done everything, and that's awesome. So, uh, so stop with the mentality that you've got something to offer. You have nothing to offer. He already offered it. Verse 4 says this, uh, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. But there's this scripture that's over and over in the text. Mark chapter 10, verse 27. Jesus looked at them and said, look at this, With man it is impossible, but not with God, right? And we could just like, boom, see it, have a great week, right? Like it's been fun. We could just stop right, like that text is so rich. But what does he say? For all things are possible with God. You can't forgive your sins, but guess what? God sends his son, has a plan of redemption, dies, walks out of the tomb, and then you get to experience what was impossible through you and now possible through Christ. Unbelievable stuff. Well, what's the product of that? What's the product? Back to verse 2. The product is a cleansed worshiper. Someone who has experienced the grace of God, not by their merit alone, but by all of what Christ has done. The product is a cleansed worshiper. Well, you remember what I said about a worshiper? Remember what I said what it was? What? It's someone who is over and over and over and over repeating their admiration, their service, their homage to God. That's a cleansed worshiper. So all of a sudden it begs the question for you and I, are you tired of worshiping God? Are you tired of it? I feel like it's our biggest plague in the church. I feel like it's our biggest plague. We get comfortable and we get complacent. The first thing to go is our admiration of God. And so guess what happens? We literally, as a cleansed worshiper, get tired of awing the very one who's made us a cleansed worshiper. So I thought it would be appropriate to share this story with you as a means of encouragement. In Mark chapter 7, uh, there's a deaf man that Jesus interacts with. and No need to turn there, just listen to this. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon and the Sea of Galilee and the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged 
him to lay his hand on him. They bring him this man. Jesus, please lay your hand on him. And taking uh, him aside, and this is one of the funny miracles. Listen to this. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue. It's an intriguing move by Jesus right there. Wouldn't you say? A finger in the ears, spit, touch the tongue. Verse 34. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephata, that is, be opened. Listen to this. And his ears were opened, and his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. And I, I kind of love this. Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. <laughs> like, no, you know, like we've just, inca- we have, we have to proclaim it. Before I share the last verse, is that your sense tonight? Do you have to proclaim it? Like, no, you don't understand. Like, he is that good, and I am in that need of him. I have to proclaim it. I can't be shut up. I will proclaim my admiration of the Lord repeatedly, over and over and over. I'm not a tired worshiper. In fact, I'm just getting started. Because he's that beautiful, he's that good. Then look at this. The last verse here, verse 37. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, he has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. They were astonished. I mean, they were just complete. They saw the power of God and something happened inside of them. As now a cleansed worshiper, faith in Christ, I have to proclaim it. Then why do we seem so tired? Why do we seem like our worship had just become this rote ritual? And I'm not talking about singing. I'm talking about life. Why does it look like we're tired with the very thing that has given us life? I believe there's a reason. It's possible that you're still remembering your sin instead of remembering the body of Christ that was broken for you. And Jesus said, you take and eat and you do this. And you know what? When you do this, you do it in remembrance of me. We're remembering a lot of other things and not the person of Christ. That's what I'm saying. You remember Jesus, you can't help yourself. You start thinking on the things of Christ as a cleansed worshiper, there's nothing else needed. At least that's my experience. I start imagining and picturing and reading from the text the person of Christ and what he is and what he's done. And my instant reaction is, you broke your body so that I could experience life and life to the full and have relationship with God. I have to worship. So I know my circumstances will burden me down sometimes. I know my job may may not be perfect. I know my relationships will struggle. But you are the precious truth. And so because of that, I've got nowhere else to go. So here I am, cleanse the worshiper. Then he held up the cup. And for those of you that have heard this over and over and over, uh, hear it again. He, he holds up the cup and he says, this is the blood which represents the new covenant. So all of this repetition now completely solidified in the blood of Christ. So he said, take and drink and do this in remembrance of me. Uh, so my contention from the scripture is this is I'm tired of being tired. We've been called as cleansed worshipers to over and over and nonstop as we await an eternity full of it. We've been called here and now to give homage and service to the one who is the only one that's worthy. No one else is worthy. He's worthy. And so we worship. Not just in song, but in life, my friends. And so for those of you that are tired tonight, 
For those of you that are just, I feel comfortable, I feel complacent, I just don't feel it anymore. When did it become about your feelings? Pause for a moment. Reflect on the power of Christ to restore you in relationship with God, and maybe then your feelings will seem a lot less significant. So tonight we respond as believers in taking this meal. The elders tonight have a chance to serve you. And my prayer for you is, as a believer, as you make this walk, to take a piece of the bread and dip it in the cup. That what you're communicating in that walk, I long and desire to worship nothing else than the person of Christ. Let's pray together. God, um, I ask in these precious moments that you've given us that the reality of who you are would sink deep into our hearts. God, show yourself. Reveal yourself. For those, God, that have been questioning and doubting, I pray, Father, that all of a sudden this rushing wind and sense of belief and trust would just come alive in them. God, for my brothers and sisters here who feel tired, I pray, God, that they stop viewing their worship of you through the lens of their circumstance, God. Grip their entire life with the power of the gospel, God. Transform them now. God, thank you for calling us your children. Let's stand and respond when you're ready.